0: You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. You may be seated. Uh, thank you to those who are serving in uh, Redemption Hill Kids this morning. Uh, as you can tell from uh, the public reading of Holy Scripture, we are firmly in the book of Hebrews. Uh, after looking at um, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18, my intention was like to cruise through the rest of chapter 10. Like, just let's just go through it today. And then as I got into God's Word on Monday, I'm like, uh, pause, time out. We can't do that. Got to, again, once again, slow down. Look at verses 19 to 25, and then, Lord willing, next week we'll begin back up in verse 26, and then hopefully we'll see, <laughs> finish the rest of chapter 10. And um, the the reason for slowing down, again, I think is pretty evident. When you read verses 19 to 25, it's meant to be an encouragement. May I add, to a victorious church, let me just saying the words, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Where is it? It's not here. Not in this church. Nor any of God's churches. And so we're going to be getting into some of the details this morning in these particular verses of what a victorious church looks like. And so that's today. And then, as you can probably tell if you continue to read past verse 25, thematically things shift slightly, ever so slightly. The shift is... Don't walk away from Christ's victorious church. Don't, the word we use, and this has come up several times throughout the book of Hebrews, don't apostatize. And so we'll, we'll tackle that next week. So if you're wondering why, hey, you, you said, Pastor Sean, we, we're approaching the Des Moines International Airport, and we're like descending, right? Yes, that's still true. It's just a very long descent. <laughs> we're just, we just keep circling the airport. We're, we're there, <laughs> and we'll get there. So anyways, just so you know a little bit what's going on from a like a preaching planning perspective but uh, for those of you who've been here for a while you're not shocked so uh, let me pray i need god's help and then we'll uh get into god's word and join uh, invite you to join me in prayer heavenly father we come to you this morning once again we come underneath your word the authority of your word so teach us well this morning You have spoken, and you continue to speak. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, be with these friends in front of me. I trust that you, O God, are a much better teacher than I ever could be. But Lord, as it is, keep air from my mouth. Help me to be an encourager this morning as we look at your word. We pray this in the only name we can pray. In Jesus' name. Uh, as I was thinking about this sermon, I, some a bunch of questions just kind of started rattling in my brain. I'm just going to give them to you to consider this morning. And the first one is, in light of this text, the question came to mind: Why do we gather? I mean, why do we show up every Sunday to worship God? Like, let's let's be honest about the fact that we 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 meet in an elementary school gymnasium, and every Sunday we bring a trailer in and we bring stuff in, and we set it up. And then we tear it down and I drive home, right? But why do we do that? Why do we gather? What is all this for? Why not sit at home, just stream the stream, you know, watch church from your couch and stream the service? I have like a lot of opinions on streaming church, but I'll table that for a moment. But let me just explain why we gather. Ryan um, showed us this earlier in worship and song. Ephesians 5.19 says we're to sing hymns and songs and spiritual songs together. Together. Not Sean Powers on his recliner. I mean, I could do that too. But as to the question why we gather, we sing to one another as we sing to God. 1 Corinthians 12 is clear that we need each other. Each member in the local church serves a purpose. We are one body in Christ. There are many members of that body. God gives each person in the church gifts to use in the local church. Every one of you has something to offer. And that takes place in part when we gather on Sunday morning. An implication of 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians 12, is that when a follower of Jesus Christ is not committed to a local church, they're unable to use their gifts to bless other people. So we, That's why we gather, so we can bless one another and be blessed by others, right? I'm so blessed by all of you when we gather because of the gifts that you use in service to God and his local church. In Galatians 6, we're called to carry one another's burdens. That's really important. Um, In the communion line, when Pastor Rob and I pray, you know, there are times we pray very specifically because there are burdens. Right? It's hard to carry those burdens for one another when we don't gather. In the same chapter of Galatians 6, it says we're able to keep watch over each other. Like, we have each other's back. Right? All these scriptural examples, and there are many more, were written by the Apostle Paul to local churches. In one sense, he was trying to connect their theology with Christian living. Like, how do we do this thing called the Christian life? How do we do that on Sunday morning, right? We read in Holy Scripture the design for the local church, and we also read in the pages of Scripture how people function in God's local church. I I think it's abundantly clear from the New Testament that God establishes local churches so that you can faithfully pursue Christ with a bunch of other people who are striving to faithfully pursue Christ. Like, we get to do that together in so many different ways. That's what we gather. Perhaps think of it this way. It's very difficult to understand the depth of Christ-like love when you are disconnected from the local church. You cannot experience genuine biblical community when you're not a part of a local church. Few people will spur you on to become more like Jesus when you're not a part of a local church. And And coming to that local church, not just filling out a membership page with your signature, but actually showing up. What does it look like to be a godly husband or wife? Come to the local church and find out. Parents, do you want to raise up your kids in a way that honors and glorifies God? Hopefully you know where to go. The local church. Sure, we have Christian friends outside of the local church. In November, for example, I was worshiping Jesus with a bunch of pastors in Frisco, Texas but God has specifically designed the local church to ensure we are being intentional in glorifying God. This local church is a group of people, as this kind of picture came to mind, is a group of people who are climbing a mountain together and they're all connected by a rope, right? Say there's 10 of us. And one of us kind of like loses grip of the mountain where there's nine of us to ensure that person doesn't fall. Like as your pastor, I need the other nine of you. I need that. I think Pastor Rob would say the same. We need each other. Until you die or Jesus comes back, God has established the local church for you to grow in your relationship with the Lord as you grow with others. And When that happens, God is glorified in your life. If I could sum up why this Local church exists, Redemption Hill Church. Perhaps it would be this. We gather together to glorify God, love each other well, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to anyone who has ears to hear. I mean, as a summary, um, you see some of the banners that we have like all of Christ, all of life for all the Des Moines Metro. That's why we exist. Like, those are not throwaway words. We don't want them to be throwaway words. We want to truly believe them and then live it out. As we continue to go through the book of Hebrews, there is a shift in emphasis in Hebrews 10 verse 19, which I already mentioned. The case has been made over and over again that Jesus is greater. Jesus is superior. And to which we can say yes and amen. If everything If everything we have seen up to this point is true, then we need to be exhorted to respond to these truths. Right? That's the question. Now what? Now what? Your entrance into the universal church by faith, faith that was purchased by the blood of Christ, as we saw last week, results in specific commitments to live within a local community of faith, which we call the local church. Entrance into Christian community goes through the door of the sacrificial death of Christ, which is where we left off last week. It is this last point that informs the passage we're looking at right now. Now, if I were to sit down with, like, a, say, a Jewish friend and read Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25, he or she would likely understand the depth of what is being communicated more than most Christians. Like Sometimes we glaze over all the imagery that's taking place. I hope that as we go through this part of Hebrews, you will be able to make sense of some of these Old Testament connections. I mean, look at verses 19 to 22. It should be up on the screen behind me. What are the holy places in verse 19? What does that mean? What what does a curtain have to do with the sacrifice of Jesus? Verse 20. What's up with the high priest in verse 21? And then in verse 22, there's verbiage of hearts being sprinkled and bodies being washed with pure water water? I mean, ask the obvious question, was the last time your heart was sprinkled? Anyone? Bueller? I think so, right? (laughs) All these images are connected with Jewish theology are now being used to symbolically describe the work of Jesus. As I said, we have already seen some of this imagery as we've gone through the book of Hebrews, specifically chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and now chapter 10. Once again, the author of Hebrews is reaching back to the Old Covenant, and more specifically to Jewish religious practices to explain why Jesus is the final and greatest sacrifice for our sin. The author of Hebrews is explaining why faith in Jesus, entrance, should spur us on in the faith with one another. There's a lot to entangle, but what I think is being said in this passage is that what we believe to be true about God is connected with how we live. What we believe and how we engage explains why we gather as a local church. Now, if you've been coming to church for longer than a cup of coffee. You've heard this before. Anytime you see the word therefore, whenever you see that word in your Bible, you need to think about what came before. Before verse 19, we have seen the excellent exposition of why Jesus is the greatest sacrifice. Then in verse 19 to 21, we kind of read of a summary of what was already stated. Then leading up to verse 25, there are three, Now, if you're an English major, you're going to love me, Three oratory subjunctives in verses 22, 23, and 24. Oratory subjunctives are an exhortation a speaker uses to urge or encourage someone in joining in action. Like tomorrow, I gotta, I'm, I'm subbing for someone um, to coach a bunch of 10-year-olds in basketball for practice. there would be a lot of oratory subjunctives. like, come on, guys, let's go. You can do this right over and over again. That's what's going on kind of right here. A lot of oratory subjunctives to encourage you, to exhort you. I mean, I do that all the time when I preach, but here they are in Hebrews 10. Let us draw near. I'm going to explain that here in a little bit. Let us hold fast. Let's hold fast, everyone, and let us consider. So we're being encouraged by the Apostle Paul. We are being encouraged by God's word. Now, these three oratory subjunctives calling us to action. But we need to ask, draw near to what? Hold fast to what? Consider what? So, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at that summary statement and then we're going to look at the, these three oratory subjunctives. Go back to verse 19. Let's actually read that together. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, that's a lot of what last week was all about, by the new and living way, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So what are the holy places referenced in verse 19 and the curtain in verse 20? To understand these terms, you need to understand the Jewish tabernacle, which we've seen over and over again already. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was the gathering point for God's people. We read about the tabernacle, for example, in Exodus, although it's in many, you read about it also in the historical books. The tabernacle, if you don't know, was a tent-like structure located at the base of Mount Sinai, at least in Exodus, and it was at the center of the Israeli camp. The tabernacle and tabernacle sacrifices, which we read about in Hebrews 10, were pillars in Jewish faith before the temple was built by King Solomon. The tabernacle is how Israel understood what it means to be in the presence of God, and this is really important, and what it means to be separated from God. Like, when you you think about that for a moment, because that's going to make sense in light of what the author of Hebrews says. The tabernacle showed us what it means to be in the presence of God, but also what it means to be separated from God. Like, if we're really honest, under the old covenant, almost all people were separated from God. because the only person who could be in the presence of God was the the high priest in the most holy place. Like you think about it like that, what Jesus has done is mind-blowing. Because here's the fundamental problem that the tabernacle and the tabernacle sacrifices try to solve. Evil exists, and the place where evil resides is in the human heart. And the question is, how can a good, just, and holy God be in the presence of evil? Well, he can't. Something needs to be done. Something needs to be sacrificed to appease the wrath of God. So instead of wiping out humanity and all evil, like Noah 2.0 could have happened. just done differently. But God, in his grace and mercy, provided another way. So instead of wiping out humanity and all the evil and sin that humanity causes, God did provide a sacrificial system to appease his holy wrath. Here's what needed to happen to appease the wrath of God. There was an animal sacrifice, and and this seems strange and foreign to us, right? It does. Uh, But we need to remember that we live in a vastly different time and culture than what we read about in, say, the book of Exodus. The animal sacrifice symbolized the death that God's people deserved because of their sin. This is called atonement. And when the animal died, the blood was taken and sprinkled on the tabernacle. That was, a, that was symbolic of purification. All of this would have made sense, again, if you were a Jew, but I imagine your sensibilities view this as strange. Back, now back to Hebrews 10. Instead of the altar being sprinkled, think about it. Instead of the altar being sprinkled with the blood of bulls and goats, what is now being sprinkled clean under the new covenant? Your heart. That's what we read. Your heart has been sprinkled clean because of Christ. Christ. So don't let the old, ta- old Covenant sacrifices become a barrier for how you see it's applied to you under the New Covenant. The sacrifices took place in the tabernacle as a picture of what Christ has done. Now, the tabernacle had three rooms, had like this outer sanctuary. It's like all of us normies could go there, right? Then you had like the holy place kind of increasing in terms of importance. Then you have like the most holy place. Depending on your status, you could enter these different rooms. And I know my description of the tabernacle does not do it justice. But what you need to know is that the tabernacle was a big deal because it is is there where one could enter, like I said, and experience the presence of God in the most holy place. Like if you wanted to experience the presence of God, that was where you go. Once a year, the day of atonement, the high priest would enter in the most holy place and make that animal sacrifice to appease the wrath of God. The idea is that a sinless animal would be symbolic to sacrifice on behalf of a sinful people. The curtain referenced in verse 20 was thick and it acted like a wall between the holy place, which all priests were able to enter, and the most holy place where only the high priest entered. The curtain is what separated everyone from the presence of God. like That's the backdrop. That's part of how we make sense of what's going on in Hebrews 19, 20, and 21. Well, fast forward, right? Jesus is the great high priest, verse 21, and the ultimate sacrifice. Because like the great high priest, Jesus, the sinless son of God, can enter the presence of God. And he, sacrificing himself on a cross and spilling his blood for the sin of his elect people provides a better way for God's people, the best way for God's people to enter the presence of God. Like, I was just pondering that point yesterday. Like, um, daughter had a swim meet. And if you've ever been to a swim meet, it's like hours and hours and hours of people swimming. And my back, you know, you know, sit on those bleachers long enough and like your back hurts. And so I'm like, I'm going to get up and just walk around. And I started pondering this idea, like, because of faith, because of the blood of Jesus Christ and faith in Christ, I'm in the presence of God. Is Christ in me, just walking around the YMCA. That's remarkable. Like right now, as I stand as you sit, like you sing in Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus did that for us. I don't need to be a great high priest who goes into the most holy place to enter the presence of God. I just need to have faith. It's remarkable. It's truly remarkable. Growing up um, during the Christmas holiday at the Powers household was, was interesting. In our house, there was a forbidden room it was located right off my parents' bedroom. You had to like, go through their bedroom to get to this room. And all four boys, all four of us boys, knew why it was forbidden. Uh, that is where all the Christmas presents were located. So you, sometimes you would peek in and you'd see them all wrapped there. But we couldn't go in there, we were told, by our mom and dad. Uh, once a year, did my mom and dad finally take these presents out of the forbidden room and place them like under the Christmas tree? What Christ has done by allowing his people to go behind the curtain would be like all four boys having access to the forbidden room every second of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, until you die. And even that, there's eternity. There is no forbidden room. We no longer need the Holy of Holies. We have Christ. I mean, I I hope you see how the imagery in Hebrews, in particular, chapter 10 right now, connects with Christ. Because Christ is the great high priest and the final sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, for anyone who has faith in him, you can now draw near to God. The sacrifice of Christ does does more than appease the wrath of God because of sin. But the sacrifice to Christ is how you're forgiven of your sin. That was verse 18 of last week. Because you've been forgiven of your sin, you now draw near to God. Here is now the question When you enter into the presence of God through faith in Christ, when you go behind the curtain, what does it look like? Right? What does it look like? Beginning in verse 22 we read that you enter into the presence of God with other people. I mean, again, that's another vast difference. We we go together as brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's not just some high priest with special privilege because he had a badge or something, you know, we go together. God's presence is no longer for one person, but for all who have faith. In the Son of God. Like, here's the first subjunctive in verse 22. In light of everything I've just said, let us draw near with a true heart. I love this. In full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, as I mentioned, right? It's no longer the blood of bull and goats being sprinkled on the altar, but your hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure. Water. There's more imagery here, but first, see the depth of your faith in Christ. Because of Christ and the faith he is giving you, you can have full assurance. You can now be assured, as we sang much this morning, you can be assured that God loves you. You can have full confidence that his favor, regardless of your circumstances, is upon you. So receive the exhorti- exhortation, right? Let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart. I mean, Christian, before the Lord saved you, what were you? You had a cold and dead heart, right? When you were saved, God took out your stony heart and gave you a heart alive with faith. Listen, listen. Because we are human and there is remaining sin, we can be tempted to believe the lie that we can't approach God. That temptation is there, it is real. Or we're tempted to believe that we can be kicked out, right? Man, Sean Powers. Just didn't give him enough faith. Gotta kick him. That's not how it works. That's not what we see here. But the good news is that because you have been declared righteous by God, you can now approach God by faith, In the Son of God, God's grip on you is much tighter than your grip on him. You can have full assurance. God is the one who saved you. You didn't save yourself. It is because of Christ that you've been sprinkled clean from the evil conscience. and Your body has been washed with pure water. The point of the latter part of verse 22 is that because you have been saved, your constitution has changed before God. Because you've been saved by the blood of Christ, God now views you as a changed person. Your nature has changed. You were a child of wrath. That's what you were. But now you are a son or daughter of the Most High God, Ephesians 2, verses 3 and 4. The problem, I think, that some Christians have is that remaining sin can become such an anchor that they feel like they can't approach God. As I said last week, sin is the ball and chain connected to the, to the end of your foot, preventing Christians from like moving forward. And this is such good news. If you are a child of God, regardless of what you're working through, God says, come to me. Come to me. Hey, listen, struggling with sin? Yeah, deal with it. Repent, for sure, 1,000%, and come to the Lord. Come to the Lord. Life just going sideways? Come to the Lord. You can approach God And he does not reject you, but he helps you. He helps you kill remaining sin. He helps you when life does go sideways. God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, is there working in you. So once again, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. If you like to write in your Bible, underline that. In full assurance. Highlight it. In full assurance of faith that God has not rejected you. For those of you who are prone to live in shame, you've got to hear that part. He has not rejected you. i also like to add this. There is no other way to draw near to God than through the blood of Jesus. Like in our pluralistic culture that says there are many ways to approach God, here we see there's only one way to approach God, and that is by faith in what God has done through Christ. Like this local church will only preach one way to draw near to God. Only one. By Christ's blood, you have been washed clean and you can approach God. There's no yoga. A yoga instructor is not going to allow you to approach God, right? The new age teacher or your personal inner light. No, none of that. Only through faith in Jesus Christ. And we get to approach God in confidence. I want you to pick up what the author of Hebrews says earlier in this sermon, just reinforcing this point we read in Hebrews 4. Because we are in Christ, let us, another oratory subjunctive right here, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Like I said, if you, if you struggle with perhaps shame or do I have full assurance let Hebrews 4, what I just read in Hebrews 10, bring comfort to your soul. Boldly approach God in faith and rest in his grace and mercy. And that was just the first oratory subjunctive. Number two. In verse 23, we read, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Notice another point of action here. First, you were encouraged to draw near. Now God's word says, hold fast, hold fast. You need to hold fast to what you know to be true. It's worth pointing out that your faith in God requires movement from you. Holding fast does not happen by accident. Yes, God's grip on you is tighter than his, but that doesn't mean you don't continue to hold. You need to hold fast. In other words, you are not passive, but you're active in your faith. Christianity is not only just saying a prayer, getting saved, and thinking it's all good, and then you put your feet up and just watch time go by. Not at all. No, faith spurs you into more action. You need to continue to pray. You need to continue to read God's word. You need to continue to press yourself into community. And as it pertains to verse 23, you need to hold fast to what you know to be true and do so as much as, it's, much as you're able. Do it without wavering. That's important to hear because it's easy to waver, it's so easy. In particular, it says here that we're called hold fast to what hope. I, I think there's an eschatological thought. Eschatology means last things, right? Eschatological thought between with the word hope, God's word wants you to consider your present circumstances in light of what's to come. And what is to come? There will be a day when Jesus will come back to physically redeem His people and restore everything. We have hope. You see, we, live, we do live in a broken world, but things are getting put back together by the Lord Jesus, who is currently reigning over all things. Yes, we do live in a time for a moment where death, suffering, decay, and sin does remain. So while your present circumstances can seem crushing, they do not, uh, they do not ultimately ruin you because there will be a day when it will all be made right. So you can live knowing that he who promised is faithful, verse 23. He is faithful. Notice that while you're spurred into action, your hope is not ultimately placed in your actions, but your hope is based upon the faithfulness of God. Think about how transformative this, tr- this truth can be when your life does go south, right? Because anyone who's been around for more than five minutes knows that life does go south. Think about how transformative this truth can be when you're suffering. Holding fast to what is to come can lead you through the darkest days. Christian, just as much as you trust God's faithfulness to save you, you can trust in God that he will one day finally rescue you from all the pain, the suffering, and the tears. So hold fast to hope. I'm just going to punctuate my point by stating that Christians have no reason for doom and gloom none. We really don't. But Pastor Sean, do you see what's going on in Israel or Ukraine or look at the economy, right? And all of a sudden, what wells up inside you potentially? Fear, right? Fear. The opposite is true for Christians. Because of Christ, you live in hope in the present and for your future. Too many Christians are crippled because they ride the wave of current events and or their emotions. But Jesus came to set you free from this kind of fear. Is it gonna go south in Ukraine or Israel or somewhere else in the world? Maybe, I, I don't know. I frankly have no control over that. I can pray, certainly. But what's the point of living in fear of that? No reason to live in fear. Hold fast to hope in God. Third oratory subjunction. Let us consider. It's the last one. If the first two exhortations involve our vertical relationship with God, uh, this last exhortation, Involves more of our horizontal relationships, the the relationships we have with other brothers and sisters in Christ, specifically in the church. Here are verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I take the day to drawing near, And I connect that to the hope I just talked about, the day when the Lord returns. During the year that shall not be mentioned, 2020, 2021 years, this passage actually became an anchor for why we gathered as a local church. There are other passages in God's Word that I could could have pointed to, but this passage accents a few important reasons why we gather. First, there is no replacement for physically gathering as a church. I I love technology. I can appreciate technology. I'm thankful that I can like Facetime my parents who are three and a half hours away, and my and they get to see their grandchildren. I'm grateful uh, when once or twice a month I get on Zoom and I'm meeting with other pastors all from around the country, and we're talking about denominational stuff, right? I, I I. Oftentimes, I lead these meetings, I thank God in prayer for the gift of technology, that we can, you know, talk and actually see each other, that's great. But there's a massive difference between being in a relationship with a person behind a screen than the person right next to you. It's a massive difference, and we we all instinctively know it. We know it because God designed us to be in community, physical community with one another. There is no replacement for physically being in the same room as another person, with another person, right? There's no replacement. I think that's accented here. The second accent of this passage is that you need to be intentional in how you interact with one another in the body of Christ, in the church this idea of stirring up one another more literally means like provoke, which is like an interesting word. Um, Like if you've ever seen two siblings or if you're a sibling, you certainly know this, like the provoking that can take place. (laughs) If you're a parent, you're like watching it live. Um, But when is provoking acceptable, right? As parents, we're just like, knock it off. But when is it acceptable? Provoking is acceptable when it leads another person to a greater love for God and a greater love for others. It's acceptable when it spurs a brother or sister in Christ. What do we read here? To do good works. As a church community, we want to love well. We want want our good works to be a demonstration of Christ's love working in and through us. Like, love is not merely an emotion, but is one conscious decision after another to tangibly show other people the love of Christ. Like, so let's stir up one another. Let's, let's provoke one another rightly. I, 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 just, I love that. I, could, I think I could take that point and just preach on that. Let's provoke each other well. But on God all day. Uh, the third accent is to consider how we uh, encourage one another away from sin. Here's Hebrews 3:13 which connects with Hebrews 10:25. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How do you practically work out Hebrews 3:13 and you know Hebrews 10 verses 18 to 25? Your encouragement or exhortation is a powerful tool in helping others fight their sin. I mean, her encouragement could look like this. Hey, man, I know you've been struggling. I know you've been struggling with this thing, and I appreciate the fact that you've confessed it. Uh, But I believe in you, not not in this self-help kind of way. I believe in you because Christ is in you. You can overcome because of Christ. You can do it. And you know what, man? I'm walking with you every step of the way. I'm not going anywhere. When you're in that moment of shame because of sin, we need people to encourage us in the gospel. We need those reminders. I need those reminders. Dude, knock it off. I have a few more thoughts about the practical implications of verse 24 and 25. This is stating the obvious. Christianity is to be done in community in the local church. I've said this over and over. While Jesus saves a person into his universal church, within his universal church are local churches where love and good works are practically tangibly expressed. As I said it before, and I'll repeat it, there's no such thing as a homeless Christian. When people first hear that, it's a little jarring. Like, what does he mean by that? There's no such thing as a homeless Christian. God has designed us to be in little platoons, communities, communities of faith, the local church. When we gather together, we're looking up in our worship to God, right? While at the same time, looking at the people who are right in front of us. When we express our love for God in worship, we provoke, right? Provoke to good works. We're living out God's design for the local church. Here's another implication. A Christ-centered and Christ-focused local church is a foretaste of what is to come. Meaning, with other believers on earth, uh, we should look forward to the eschatological gathering of what is to come, right? I don't think we talk about this aspect enough. Redemption Hill Church gathers together with brothers and sisters of Christ, and there will be a day when this great gathering of every tribe, tongue, and nation will exist. When we sing, that's a foretaste. When we provoke one another well, that's a foretaste. The greatest compliment I think I've ever received about this particular local church um, was this. You guys extend love to one another and to guess really well. I was like, thank you. Thank you, right? That's a foretaste of what is to come. Last, um, I highlight the importance of gathering because of what we read in verse 25. We must not miss the exhortation not to neglect to gather together. I think of all the encouragements and exhortations that we read in this passage, this might be the most difficult to live out and perhaps the most difficult to hear, frankly. Like, I'm sorry if I'm causing a bit of PTSD, but the shutdowns of 2020 and 2021 resulted in a lot of people thinking through what it means to be committed to a local church. According to Barner Research, the number of people who regularly attended church before March of 2020 and then no longer attended a year, year and a half later, is in the millions. I think a lot of people didn't re-engage for at least two reasons. And I'm calling out, kind of my own tribe, my own—I use this in air quotes—my own profession. Pastors, I think, have failed to preach and persuade from the Scriptures God's design and expectations for the local church. I think there's a couple reasons why the american evangelical pastor has been more concerned with entertainment than telling people truth butts in the seat man just get butts in the seat like i don't want you to walk away from a sean powers sermon remembering that great illustration or story i want you walking away hearing from god's word learning from god's word growing because you opened up to god's word Pastors should not be exegeting the latest Pixar movie. They should be exegeting, opening up, explaining the word of God. I think that shallowness, in my opinion, we'll put this in the opinion category. Soapbox opinion category of Sean Powers. Um, there's, There's too much shallow teaching and we need the depth of God's word in front of us. Here's another reason why millions of former churchgoers have not reengaged. The average American evangelical pastor has not been telling their people what they must hear. Namely, we must gather so that we can stir each other up to love and good works, right? Oftentimes, what's being communicated is what people want to hear. There's a vast difference between what you need to hear, what I want to hear. Like, hey man, did you wake up late? Couldn't get to church. That's all right. Go ahead and stream the service. You know, no, none of that. Come gather, come gather as mandated by God so that I can provoke you to love and good works. So I, I do lay, lay part of the blame of why that oratory subjunctive um, has kind of gone south. I place the blame, I sense it in pastors, myself included, right? It's my tribe. Here's a broader reason why Christians might neglect to gather. We live in a generation where commitment is scary for various reasons. Um, some of you might be part of the most uncommitted generation in like human history up to this point. Uh, specifically yo- younger folks, right? There's a lack of commitment in the church. Lack of commitment with marriage, right? I mean, just look at the, the statistics. Lack of commitment with all job changes, right? lack of investment in civic communities. And here's, here's what I'm gonna to say, to be a Christian means to be committed, be committed, more specifically to a local church and those who are in that local church. With all that said, my clarion call from Hebrews 10 is to be a people who are willing to be the exception of the statistics that we see in culture, especially when it comes to the biblical mandate to gather. My plea, like with the word of God in hand, right? My plea is that there should not be a more special place on earth other than the home for us to be in this gymnasium with one another. Like, the most unoppressive place, Right? And yet here we are. Love each other well. Provoke one another. It does not matter uh, your your IQ. Mine's pretty low. It doesn't matter what kind of theological acumen you have, how much theology you do or do not know. Your giftedness. You're all gifted in some way, but it doesn't matter what kind of gifts You have, doesn't matter how many Bible verses you have or have not memorized. Does not matter if you just became a Christian yesterday or you've been faithfully walking with the Lord for 30 years. The local church, and may it be this local church, is a place where you can grow in your relationship with God as you grow with other people. This local church is a place where you can receive encouragement. You can be provoked in all the right ways When you endure suffering, others will come carry your burdens with you. This local church is a place that will constantly encourage you to find your hope in Jesus. You will be pointed to Jesus from this pulpit. Or when you're talking with a friend after church. If you want to live the Christian life as God designed it, you need to invest in the local church. You need to invest in the gathered community of believers. So in closing, when we gather, let us be bold, right? Let us be bold, knowing that Christ has granted us access to God by his blood. May you draw near with full assurance, again, underline that in your Bible, full assurance, full assurance of faith, knowing that your life has been purchased by God. and May you never neglect to meet together, knowing that God has placed you in a local church where you are spurred on to become more like your Lord and Savior.